Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. And surprise! It's a Friday bonus episode. Haven't done one in a while? Thought I should. My guest is Agam Darshi, an actor you may have seen in everything from You, Me, Her, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, and The Magicians to The Flash and Deepa Mehta's Funny Boy. You'll also be seeing her in Ava DuVernay's DMZ in a matter of weeks. Agam has also just written and directed her first feature, Donkey Head, in which she plays Mona, a frustrated writer plunged into a personal crisis when her more successful siblings come back home to Regina to be with her and their dying father. It's streaming on Netflix in most of the world, and it opens theatrically in Regina, Saskatoon, and Toronto today. You should check it out. Agam picked William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, Baz Luhrmann's stunning 1996 adaptation of the classic romance, with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes as star-crossed lovers living in an amped-up whirlwind of pop culture references, explosive violence, and swooning, heart-rending love, surrounded by a killer cast of rising stars and old pros. In an age where studios like Miramax were using literary classics as fodder for Oscar bait, Luhrmann and his Red Curtain team, screenwriter Craig Pierce, cinematographer Donald McAlpine, and production designer Catherine Martin, turn this centuries-old story inside out to show us its vivid, beating heart. So, of course we're still talking about it 25 years later. This is someone else's movie. <laughs> uh, that's funny that you call it William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, because I always think it's called Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> I'm sure he, has... he prefers it that way. Yeah, I'm sure. So that film came out when I was 16 years old. Um, and it was such a, it was a very specific time in my life. And, you know, we were studying Shakespeare at school and I, I personally love Shakespeare. Um, and I, I've seen a lot of different renditions made into films. Uh, but that one in particular was just so, uh, it just caught me, you know, like, I think he just does such a great job at making it so accessible and I had never at that point in my life seen anything quite like that you know and it it has all the right ingredients to make it you know a teen movie in some ways uh but at the same time like it's it is really beautiful and it's 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 Shakespeare so it has a lot of depth um and now that I'm older I I know that there's there's hate on for this film <laughs> and so it's it's kind of I still keep going back to, though to the fact that I think it's actually a really brilliant film I think it was really well made and um and really like he he's very smart in how he was able to balance the heart of the film and make people really care while also like adding so much sparkle yeah, I I loved it. I mean, I I remember seeing it at the time in my late twenties and reconnecting to all of it, like to the intensity, to the story, to the decisions he makes uh, aesthetically and narratively, and the weird conviction coming out of it that this was some kind of miracle because Claire Danes was delivering Juliet's lines as though no one had ever spoken them before. That was the thing that really struck me. It's an interpretation that feels like a teenager's version where, you know, it just acknowledges everything is in technicolor and you can barely think because of the pulses in your head and the blood running through your body. And every idea you've had is the greatest idea ever. And every pain you suffer is the worst pain ever. And everything in the movie is just designed to telegraph that into the audience. 
um, it, I, it really, it really surprised me because I, I don't know if I was dreading it. I really liked Strictly Ballroom and I was glad that he was making Shakespeare. It seemed like a good fit. Uh, but I know that the buzz around it was confusing. And mm-hmm. I mean, I saw it about a week before it opened and, and people were already starting to like it, but also like it in a really loud way, which before social media didn't have any expression other than, you know, news group posts about how people are screaming at this film and they're not sure that's a good thing. And then I saw it and it's like, oh no, I get it. This is like, if you were a teenager and you saw this movie, it would be like being in a room with the Beatles. It's just a seismic event. At the time, right? DiCaprio was like the biggest thing and was getting only bigger. And so, and he was, he's so beautiful when he's that young and he, he, he was the perfect Romeo. And then you have Claire Danes who was just like, oh, so, so beautiful. And it just made this, like it, it was definitely a, a teenager's wet dream in a lot of ways. But I think I think it's actually a lot more sophisticated than people give it credit for. I think, um, like, you know, he's able to really bring life to, I, I feel like Baz Luhrmann knew the script inside and out, which you have to when you, when you do Shakespeare. But he brought life to lines that sometimes are so you know, they're thrown away or people don't really, really think about them or they give it much credit, but he was able to just really break down certain moments and certain nuances in, in, um, in the, in the, the, the dialogue, Mm -hmm. uh, in what Shakespeare wrote that felt really fresh that I was like, Oh, that's what that meant. You know, everybody knew exactly what they were saying. Um, and, and yeah, it was just really, it was really quite, quite wonderful in that way. Yeah. I hesitate to make the comparison because it feels like it's almost too pat, but it, it really feels now like the only other thing that comes close is Hamilton, right? For like, for the theater kid appeal of watching a mashup of something that should be a certain way played in a, in a very deliberately contemporary fashion, almost explicitly calling attention to the fact that it is a, a jarring mismatch of what's happening at versus what happened. Um, just, I remember the opening sequence, like the opening shot the, um, of the announcer just starting into the play mm. without, without even blinking. And the audience can either take it or leave it, but this is where we're going. Yeah. It, it, there was nothing about it that really makes sense. And I think Hamilton's such a great uh, a great comparison because, and I think there's something about that. There's something that I personally really love when you're able to mash up a few different genres unapologetically, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. And he does this throughout. I, you can't really pinpoint what he's trying to do. Like there's a little bit of Bollywood. There is a little bit of opera, you know, there's, and, and it doesn't, there's, it's more like more is more, you know, for him. Like there's no subtlety about it, which is really bold and scary. And I think the thing that also kind of excited me, uh, I watched it again recently, was just the fact that it shouldn't work. Like it shouldn't (laughs) work, but it does because it seems like people, all the actors are kind of in their own film in some ways. Some are doing comedy and some are actually, you know, in this love story, uh, and maybe it's just the groundedness of their performances that makes it work. But then some like the mother, she's fantastic, but she's not really grounded 
sometimes she is. And yet somehow it works. Sometimes you understand who she is and why she's like, you know, such a, such an important character to Juliet and, and how she sort of fits into all of it. Um, Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is just the fact that you care about these you care about the love story. You want Romeo, like it's tragic at the end when she wakes up and she sees Romeo, like take the poison and then he dies, you know, like you, you really feel it. Uh, and you feel sort of how this, these two families made that happen. And yet it's so over the top and it's so comical and crazy that it shouldn't actually be working because there's too much going on. Yeah, well, you mentioned opera, and I think that's a pretty good point of comparison as well, where everything is larger and, and louder uh, because that's how you deliver the emotions. Mm-hmm. Like you, you remove all the barriers to expression and just sing or I mean, nobody sings in this movie. Uh, Paul Sorvino somehow is playing, as, as Papa Capulet, is incredibly operatic without ever raising his voice, really. Yeah. Like it's just his face more than anything else. And he's balanced out by Brian Dennehy. And they're just these two great, iconic, big leading, or not leading men, big character actor guys who you've known forever. And they're suddenly the parents of these children, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't work, but sort of does because, you know, old dudes are having babies forever. Uh, <laughs> like that, But that's part of the opera thing, right? Like the legacy of it all is like the, fa- the fact that generation upon generation is piling up and all of these these blood oaths and anger uh, have been boiling forever and ever. And the kids are just the victims. Like they're really too. And, and again, you're right. DiCaprio is his, his thin, frail, beautiful self, right? The not the perfect non-threatening boy icon of that mm-hmm. moment. Um, he looks like he can't hold any of this weight. Like he's, he is as fragile as Juliet is, but Romeo is trapped in this, in this violent cycle that isn't really his fault. He's just sort of a bystander to all of it. And the thing that destroys them is the, is the weight of everything around them, the history of it. And that's opera. Like that's, that's so opera. And that's Baz Luhrmann's background as well. Wasn't Mm -hmm. it? Well, experimental opera, right? And he would, he would do things. I don't know if it's true, but I've heard stories of him trying to stage something. Was it as you like it on roller skates? Uh, (laughs) I don't know if it's true, but I want it to be. It sounds like it could be. (laughs) It's very good. Well, I love that. Like, I think it just, I mean, film is so expensive. Why do they give him so much money to make the film <laughs> that he makes? But it's, but they do it. And it's such a riot to watch, you know, and, and it takes a lot of balls to, I mean, let's say that <laughs> these so. days. it takes, it takes a lot to like, to, to say, no, this is, this is the way I see it. And this is how I'm going to portray it. Um, because like I said, there's no subtlety to it. So it could probably be a big mess very easily. Yeah. But it's the control, right? Like the sense that someone is at the tiller, that there is a, there is someone in command and, and they're all holding that line, that tonal line of, of excitement and abandon just enough. I mean, yeah, there's no way that this film should have room for what John Leguizamo does and also somehow what I don't know, Paul Rudd does. And they occupy the same yeah. space. And, and and I think that's what confuses me. I haven't quite figured out how he does <laughs> that because I've seen, like recently I saw a comedy and it just felt like it fell flat because it felt like everybody was in their own own story and the, the direction just didn't really quite mesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why does this work? I don't know. 
Because they're all wearing sequins. I don't know. <laughs> it's possible. You have just enough unreality. I mean, it's the same way that in Moulin Rouge, when people start singing songs that haven't been written yet, it makes mm. sense. And mm. I think it's just because there's no attempt to explain it. It just happens. Maybe. And it doesn't look back, right? Like it just keeps rolling. Mm-hmm. They say that Bollywood is also like Baz Luhrmann likes Bollywood. And, and that's also been a um, for him an inspiration in his work. And I guess they do that as well. Like all the time, mm-hmm. there's no, nobody's trying to explain why you break out in song and run around a field, but it just, that's part of the world. And so you just accept it. Yeah. Was it, oh, it was, was it Gurinder Chadha who made Bride and Prejudice, which has that scene early on of Naveen Andrews just saying, we're all going to dance now. Just don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's been a long time since I saw that one. Yeah. It's yeah. been a while. So, well, but how often do you come back to this? I mean, is it something that has stayed with you or, or that sat for a while? Cause it's been a good, I would say probably 20 years since I looked at it last. Um, it's been a long time. I mean, I watched it recently, mm-hmm. uh, but Look, before between, that, yeah, yeah for this, <laughs> I was like, let me remind myself again, why I like this movie. Um, but it, yeah, it has been a long time, but I think it just stuck with me because I really love coming of age films, you know, in, in different ways. And um, that one just made such a big impact at that particular time in my life. You know, it, it really just, it does have the angst and it was everything that a young woman wanted in her life, not necessarily the death at the end, but just sort of like that, that desire, you know, to feel, I think, is really what it comes down to. It's all about feeling and desire to just want to feel more and experience more um, was really just had a real had a real impact on me. And I think I think there's also something about just feeling like you're, he was he was coloring outside the lines, you know, like and and that's refreshing sometimes when obviously his technique is so good that he can color outside the lines and it still works and it it uh he's able to create something beautiful from it but it's refreshing like i remember actually around the same time or a few years later i uh was introduced to um hoxley workman do you know who he is oh yeah i've seen him in concert a few times yeah and so uh this was early on in his career and i remember seeing him on stage and he was wearing like this red feather boa and just like singing like again like in that kind of operatic sort of cabaret kind of way and i think maybe that's just something that i'm really attracted to as an artist because it's like oh there's no rules here there's no i think that's what it is there's no rules um to romeo and juliet and and I find that refreshing in a world that is so built on rules and in an industry where like people are always telling you like, you know, it has to look like this and go like this, you know? Well, and especially too, if you're that age and you're still a sponge, right? Like you're taking mm-hmm. and you haven't figured out your own approach yet. If you're taking in everything and you see one thing that resonates with you, you'll come away thinking this is the way I should work. This is the way everything should be. It's, it's the Hamilton effect, right? There are a hundred different people badly doing what Lin-Manuel Miranda does beautifully because of that, not because of the success, but because they were in the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, What was the Velvet Underground line? Like 12 people saw them, but everybody who saw them went off and started their own band. Um, Baz Luhrmann, I think, is that kind of game changer. He's He's the, not everybody who saw Strictly Ballroom came away impressed, but I remember that year at TIFF at 1992, it was there 
with um, the same studio. Well, Miramax had them both actually. Um, Miramax had brought that and Reservoir Dogs. And mm. very quickly it became clear that there were two camps. There were people who loved one or the other. And then there were people who loved the other, but not the first. Mm. And I liked them both, um, but I was 24 and a guy. So Reservoir Dogs was my thing. But then I kept coming back to Strictly Ballroom and realizing there's something here that's really pure. It just, I, I don't think, like if you see it at a film festival and you've never seen anything like it, it won't leave you. And, mm -hmm. and so his cultural thing is much more specific. Like Tarantino spawned an entire, not even a wave, but an industry of crappy dialogue driven crime pictures. We're still seeing them now because they're cheap to make, but Lerman does something no one else can do. And the closest they came um, to not a knockoff, but a companion piece were the things that PJ Hogan was doing like Muriel's wedding. Because mm -hmm. um, they're they're sort of a commonality there. They're both Antipodean, musically influenced stories mm -hmm. about eccentric people doing their own thing, which was a very comfortable indie thing. Mm -hmm. But then Lerman just abandoned it. The like right away, his next project is this, um, and it just it levels him up in such a a unique and specific way that even now, when people say a Baz Lerman movie, you know exactly what they mean, even if you don't know what movie you're talking about. Yeah, I think that's quite a legacy, you know, that's that's pretty that's pretty wild that he has the ability to do that. And it also transcends a lot of cultural, you know, things as well. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's from Australia, but he's really sort of playing with so many different references from different kinds of cultures. And so maybe that's also the appeal is that, you know, whether you are from India or whether you're from, you know, Australia or or Canada, there is just something in there that just feels like, oh, maybe I've seen this before, even though I have never seen anything like this before. You yeah. know, I think there's something really interesting about that. It's the camp of it, I think. Mm -hmm. The fearlessness of doing something so broad that it could be taken as comedy, but refusing to commit to it. Yeah. Or, but also, refuse, sorry, not refusing to commit to it, but refusing to fall into it, to tip into comedy mm -hmm. and, and holding on to the tragic stuff. The of the moment you mentioned of, of Juliet turning and seeing Romeo take the poison, that's his invention. That's not in the script. No. And yeah. I, the whole room, I saw it in, where was it? It was the Highland 2. I remember this really vividly because it was this great old theater. It was a converted balcony in a Toronto, giant Toronto theater, which was split into two. They turned the balcony into its own space. It was this big, wide, but fairly shallow room. So you really sit with everyone in that space mm -hmm. in a way that you don't in the Highland 1 because it had this huge ceiling. The 2 mm -hmm. was much, much more compressed. Mm -hmm. So when that moment happened and 400 people went, <gasps> the air literally gets sucked out of the room. And I remember that moment of just such an incredible shiver running through. Like, how do you make Romeo and Juliet surprise people without changing the text, right? And that's how he did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, but I think that's what I mean is that he brought so much humanity to the text, which we have all heard a million times. Yeah, There's moments that the mother has where she like, I can't even remember off the top of my head right now, but where she says something to Juliet and then she gets, she leaves the room again, you know, and it's like, oh, that is actually the text, but I've never seen it done that way. Like she has different beats within this one moment that feels really surprising and really fresh. Um, or even like Mercutio, you know, he's where he's taking the pill and he kind of goes off um, into like a moment of madness. And then I realized recently I was like, 
Oh, I think he suffers from PTSD because he's been in, he was a soldier, like, or he's, he's, he's fought before, or there's something in his past that, and that's why he's kind of, you know, a little bit unhinged. And I'm like, every single character has a backstory that is really rich and that informs what they're doing now. And even the choice for some of these characters to have accents, you know, um, and they don't usually, you know, the actors themselves don't speak that way, but they have such a rich backstory. So I guess, I guess the the thing is, is that he, Baz Luhrmann was able to create, to give uh, the actors so much that they were able to really ground their characters. So even though they, there are some of them that are like a little bit more funny and a little bit, a little bit crazy or whatever, the, just the reality, like they believe in this story so much in this world so much that as an audience member, you have no, you have no, um, you can't help, but also believe in them as well. And, yeah. and, and he, perhaps that's why he's so successful in his, in his films is, or at least in this particular film, because, um, anyone else may not understand that when you have actors that that have that much depth and that have their roots going down so deep into the story and and have such belief then it just becomes fluffy right but because they're they're like they're so deep in it that it you believe it you and and you feel for them yeah i mean it's such a crowded play and he somehow finds a a space for every one of those characters. I'm, yeah. I keep thinking about Leguizamo as Tybalt, who yes. he is both having fun with the parody of the street gangster thing he's doing, but also letting us know that Tybalt is doing it consciously because he drops it when he needs to. Mm-hmm. And th- just the moments that in a, in a film that is cut as rapidly and shot as complicatedly, is that even a word? With, with you know, like organized with such complexity, we we are allowed to see all of that. Like Lerman mm. makes sure we catch those moments and we also yeah. catch the people around him enjoying them. And and it is, it just it's it's a way of participating. It's a way of inviting us onto the stage with them in a weird way and, and just say they're committed. So you should you you need to be as committed or else you'll be lost. And there were people, there were critics who couldn't keep up. I remember mm. reading um kind of complainy reviews about how it was the MTVs, Romeo and Juliet, that was a big thing at the time. And then you look back at the MTV videos that were being produced at the time. And it's like, that's how movies are made now. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's TikTok. It's just the younger generation figuring stuff out and realizing that they can process information a little more quickly than the older generation. And there's really no reason not to do that uh, for, for effect, for impact and mm-hmm. going for it, just going for it. There's that moment where um, where Mercutio dies and and he's stabbed, and it's almost like even though this is something that um, Tybalt had like tried to had 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 been threatening to do. Once it's done, there is kind of this look of like, oh shit, I just I killed this guy, yeah. you know. And it's it was just really it was really profound because you, you, you just don't usually get to see those sides of people, you know? And so that was really, I remember watching that and it, it just really hit me the nuances of, of the performance, especially his, I really love John Leguizamo a lot. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a really great role for him. I'm, I'm kind of surprised he didn't get more action work, although he has talked about just the whole, um, how did he, I want to get, I want to get the quote right, but he's talked about the felt he'd been discriminated against 
uh, as a potential leading man for his entire career. And I certainly, given the roles he did, he got, it's it's not hard to see it. Oh yeah, I remember seeing him live on on uh, in LA. He did his one one man show. Oh man, he's just ghetto clown. He's so good. Like he's just like he's so dynamic, and I've just been such a fan of his for so long that it it does kind of blow my mind that he's not everywhere or or more of a lead you know it's funny how people get kind of slotted into different things especially when they are people of color like he's he has a yeah he he, he definitely should be a lot further ahead yeah i've only seen his uh, his live stuff on on tape and it's been yeah it's been amazing i can't imagine what it would be like to see it live oh it's great it's yeah it's just he's so funny and fun and fearless yeah, yeah. and Again, Lerman captures it. He gives him an yeah. opportunity to channel it into an existing role in a you know world we vaguely recognize, and still make it feel like a superstar performance. I mean, mm-hmm. he was the he was the actor everyone was talking about. I mean, okay, DiCaprio and Danes, but the the standout among the ensemble, I guess, is was always Leguizamo, and mm-hmm. it's like Tybalt's a great role. He's he's oh, yeah. having the best time with it. But if they got that wrong, it wouldn't. No one would remember him. Yeah, he um, he's so dangerous and he he's frightening. You know, he's actually legitimately frightening playing that role. I remember there was this one moment where he had one line, one verse. And just the way he was able to sort of like, you know, march into it and say his line with so much. Um, he took his time and he he just he really just settled in. I, I don't know. He's, he's, it's, it was quite remarkable. Like just everything that he brought even to like one, one stanza. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't want to slight Harold Perrineau as Mercutio because he's great, but Mercutio mm-hmm. is the one who's play acting as a warrior and Tybalt isn't. So mm. there's no doubt every time they come together, it, it builds the story, right? It builds the idea of Romeo as the peacemaker because he knows his friend is going to get killed if he goes up against this guy. Mm-hmm. And that's Juliet's responsibility in a strange way. And it all comes back to them. And again, the architecture of the play, there's a reason it's been performed everywhere in every language over and over and over again for centuries. But you just, now it feels like watching The Wire almost mm. like with, it, with its understanding of layers and layers and layers and how everyone interacts with everyone else. It's so many versions uh, on film, drill down into Romeo and Juliet and keep it from coming to life when it's so mm-hmm. clear that the world is what matters and what gives it texture beyond the sappy teenagers in love thing. Yes, I think that's also what Shakespeare wanted, right? I mean, oh, that yeah. was that's the the type of writer he was. He didn't want these like grand, very like pretty, you know, plays to be seen. He wanted he wanted a ruckus. He wanted people to be drunk near the stage when they were performing these and and talking back to the actors like that was the energy. And I think Baz Luhrmann was able to capture that with this film. Like it's it is a ruckus. It's a circus. It's an event, you know, and and it's as it should be seen. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. I I, I go back and forth on which one is his masterpiece. It's either this or Moulin Rouge. Hmm. Moulin Rouge does drill down in a way that I I like also just because Nicole Kidman is as good in that as she's been in anything. And she could have only been playing a two-dimensional, like Satine as a character barely exists, but she invests her with so much life mm. that it matters. But 
then I come back to this and that moment between DiCaprio and Danes, between Romeo and Juliet as their lives end. And it's like, God damn it. Mm-hmm. You know, not only did he think of it, but he framed it, he shot it, he cut it in such a way as to make us feel again, this tragedy that we've known was coming. I, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know how this ends. And even the opening line, the newscaster tells us never was a tale of more woe, mm-hmm. but oh my God, it hurts. I yeah, it hurts. I absolutely agree. And yeah, I, I can't, I don't know how he did it. You know, I, technically, yes, because I, I understand, but yeah, I you can take it apart it. and look at it yeah. shot to shot, sound cut to sound cut, but it doesn't seem like it would really make sense given the fact that it is an MTV sort of commercial, really, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not, it feels like so much fluff. And yet underneath that, there's just so much that like vibrates and that resonates and yeah, just to kind of see these, these two people that, you know, are going to die. And, and it doesn't make sense that they fall in love with one day and one moment. And yet for some reason, that moment, I keep going back to it. One of my favorite moments is when they see each other for the first time through the fish tank. Oh yeah. I mean, he was able to ca- like have two people fall in love with no words, uh, literally within like, you know, a minute as they're watching each other and, Yet it works for some reason. Well, Danes is just such an incredible reactive performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and DiCaprio is so present and alive that, I mean, I get him. He plays curiosity and yeah. she plays charmed in a way that also feels like it's never happened to anyone before. I, mm-hmm. I was stunned at how well she fits in. And th- that was the thing too. I was worried that she'd be too contemporary because I'd seen her in my so-called life and she is so yeah. in the moment, right? In that and then you realize that Lerman's device is that it is contemporary. So it doesn't matter. People can play mm-hmm. period. People can do the accents. They can wear armor. Whatever they want to do fits in this world. He's already built it. Mm-hmm. But she's so good at uh, the spontaneous reactions that you realize that, yeah, of course, this is how it happens when you're a teenager and you've never experienced this stuff before. It's all fresh and new. I think her internal world is also so present and um alive she doesn't have to do much that moment where she realizes that romeo is um uh, a capulet (laughs) (laughs) like a montague no he's a capulet um it's so it's she she doesn't do anything really it doesn't seem like she's doing much but it's all behind her eyes and it's it's all just kind of like this like this this heartbreak yet a curiosity and it's I love it when actors are able to do that when they're able to really just be like they're sort of sitting in a a state as opposed to trying to present a state I think she does that really well yeah Um, do you do you know the stories of the original casting because it Um, wasn't it was not her supposed to be Natalie Portman right yeah who was seven years younger than DiCaprio and I think she was 14 he was 21 and it didn't work um, and I, I can buy that because also there's the size differential just in terms of age. She's always looked young, but she's little and he's not. And it would have been creepy and weird. And then they were going to go with Sarah Michelle Geller for a while. I heard about that, too, which um, was really surprising to me because I just I can't see it. I always see her as Buffy. Right. So it's yeah. really hard to kind of see her outside of anything that feels very um, TV, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and she was with Fox at the time working on Buffy. So I guess that's, that was how she came up that they mm-hmm. had her available. Maybe it was a hiatus or something. And she was a quick replacement, but 
yeah, I don't, I, she's so good in Buffy that I want to believe it would have worked, mm. but I, yeah, I can't see it either. It's weird. I think and, Claire Danes just has a, like a classical appeal as well. She seems like she's classically trained and she has trained since she was really young. So I, I want to believe that just all of that would lend itself well to being able to, to present Shakespeare. Shakespeare is so hard, you know, you need somebody who's, who's just able to, to deliver that language in a way that feels really honest and, and grounded. And she was only, she was also really young. She was only like what, 17, I think when she. That sounds about right. She was yeah, born in 1979. So yeah, she would have been. 16, 17. 16 yeah. when they shot it. That can't be right. I guess it is. That's weird. Good wow. for her. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that, there's hard to live behind what her performance was, right? Yeah. She feels like a wise soul to be able to pull that off. Yeah, it's still a good four or five years younger than her co-star, so closer to the real age. I mean, I've seen people of the approximate age in movies. Uh, there was one with Haley Steinfeld a little while ago. I don't think anybody had the right tone. Like, it's not, it's not anyone's fault, but it just doesn't work on film. You can see that everyone is reading the lines and trying, but it's just not landing. I'm sorry, was, this is this is a version of Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was after her true the Coen Brothers True Grit, which was 20, okay, okay. Yeah. 2010, 2011. Um, there's the there's the the famous 1970s one with Olivia Hussey and someone whose name I can't remember, um, which is Zeffirelli's film where it's it's very or was that 67 it was it was like late 60s early 70s Franco Zeffirelli production which is famously remembered because it had a, a hint of nudity and was shown in schools mm-hmm. um and I remember seeing it on a terrible VHS tape in in high school and thinking yeah this is fine but there's got to be a better way and then 10 years later there you are mm-hmm. um you make it contemporary ish and you just play into it it's the you mentioned the that Shakespeare wrote his plays for raucous audiences and everybody remembers paintings right so everyone sees still lifes of these performances where actors are hitting some sort of pose with a skull in their hand and the light hitting them just right in what we assume is hushed silence and so many movie versions seem to be trying to recreate that airlessness Mm. where you honor the material to death and yeah you as you said lerman does not care if he honors it as long as he tells it properly uh He's, yeah. well, that's not, that's not exactly it. He's, tra- he's chasing, he's chasing the emotional impact rather than the, the austerity and, and the, and the severity. And I think that's what you have to do in today's, for today's audiences. If you're trying to make Shakespeare, make people care about Shakespeare, then you do need to go after the feeling and the heart of it, because otherwise what's the point? People are going to yawn and they're going to move on. You know, nobody really cares about two people at a balcony, but the way he did it, like that moment, you know, it was just my favorite, another favorite part of that, of, of the film was, um, at the end of the balcony scene, when the music swells and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Romeo, he's like, he climbs up the, the lattice one last time and gets the necklace from Juliet. And it was just such a, like, you want that to happen. You know, it's just, it, it, it's just such a beautiful moment. And, and it's all about feeling, it's all about heart, you know, and it really just gets across how much these two people care for each other and that kind of like first love, you know, the, the beautiful honeymoon phase where the world drowns out and you just are left with these two people. I think, 
Um, Kenneth Branagh is also somebody that I really love and, and his rendition of Hamlet I thought was really wonderful, but he doesn't make it contemporary at all. But I think his understanding of, um, of Shakespeare is just so great that he doesn't make it contemporary, but he does definitely lean into, you know, the sexuality of, of, of Shakespeare and of Hamlet and Ophelia, you know, and I think, I think that's a big part of Shakespeare is like, it's sexy and it's, there's a lot of sexuality. And so we need to like, you, you need to bring that in the films, you know? Yeah. You have to root for the kissing. Like you, yeah. you want characters to get to, I, I, I prefer his much ado about nothing just because it mm. moves so well. It, it, that's uh, a great one. And yeah. Emma Thompson's so good in that. Yeah. Oh, Denzel Washington as Don John. Yeah. Everybody's great. Yeah. Or no, sorry, not Don John. Macbeth recently? I, I have. The Cohen Macbeth is, yeah, it's, have you seen it? I have. It's so stark. I love it. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really stark. <laughs> There's moments I like the acting obviously is amazing, but it was, it was a hard one for me to really kind of get into. And oh. I think that's the thing is that, that with Shakespeare, for me, at least, I just find that sometimes it can be really hard to just connect. Mm. And so, you know, film is a visual medium. And so I want something yummy to look at. I want to, I want to fall into, like, I want to swoon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I can see that the more expression is black and white of it. I, I like that because it tells us that there's a reason they cast people in their sixties to play these characters, that they're old and childless and empty. And this is the world they've built for themselves. But I, you know, I get what you're saying. There are, there are lustier versions of Macbeth that are uh, livelier. I mean, the, well, there's the Polanski one, which is problematic in a million ways, but it's a, a film about a man working through the loss of his wife and, and unborn child that is all over that screen. Like you can't get away from the fact that this is made by a traumatized person, whatever mm. else is going on in the world. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, I, I mean, I think the versions of Macbeth that I really love is when I, I like, don't get me wrong. Uh, Francis McDormand was amazing in it. Uh, but I, and, and I, and I understood her, but I think I just really love it when I can see when I can see the manipulation mm. when through, through Lady Macbeth um, and that connection that she has with her husband, that's just always a little bit more perhaps sexual or, you know, th there's, there's the way, the way Lady Macbeth is able to, to um, manipulate her husband through different means necessary, you know? Yeah, that's true. The, the Cohen version is really more about insecurity and, and a feeling that she's owed something that she didn't get as opposed to, someone who seizes the chance to do evil. You know, mm. That version of Lady Macbeth has always been, yeah, I mean, it's, that's a villain as opposed to a victim. Well, also just the desire, like when mm. just, I, I want something. So how do we go about getting it? And what can we build together? You know, and how do we, um, how do we, how do we get what we want? Um, I don't know. I, I find that interesting when Lady Macbeth is played in, in that kind of vein. Yeah. Um, Someone who's thought it through enough to see the pros and cons, but also what if I removed all the possibilities of punishment? What would we get then? Yeah. And how do I manipulate my husband in order to get it? Like what, what have I got as a woman in those times? Mm. What, what assets do I have that I can bring to the table in order to, to make him see it from my point of view? Yeah. I kind of wouldn't mind seeing Claire Danes tackle it now. Hmm, that would be interesting. Yeah. yeah, after what we've seen on Homeland and and her range and her ability to play people with sort of conflicting, um, not morals exactly, but conflicting goals and, and 
the way that the way that character could contain a million things that would push and pull at her at the same time. That could be fun. I think you're right. Yeah. I want Macbeth to be fun again. <laughs> Let's do that. So um, I was trying to figure out a way to, to bring um, Romeo and Juliet around to Donkey Head because there is something there. There's the conflicting goals and and the the, the big swirling family. But in Donkey Head, it's much more intimate. Um, you're not doing anything that Lerman did. You're you're trapping people in spaces with each other, mostly interiors. Um, but there is a sense of conflict about honor and family and what it is to be the child of someone who holds power over you, even when that person is no longer able to exercise that power. You're still feeling your character feels very much trapped between her responsibilities to her father and what she wants herself to the point where I don't think for the first hour, she can even express what it is that she feels trapped by. That's yeah. That's actually really interesting. It's the first time I've seen it from that point of view and that lens that there is perhaps something Shakespearean about donkey head. <laughs> it's <laughs> a know, family I, tragedy. I mean, obviously no, I think you're right. I think you're right. And that's kind of, yeah. I think that's really fascinating and it's just the different archetypes about of of characters um mm -hmm. yeah i mean it, it is i think just so actually like i think coming from a south asian background so much is about honor it's about sh and there is so much shame embedded in the culture mm -hmm. and uh so much is about duty you know to the point where we don't um for the most part put our elderly in homes you know there's a lot of duty about like having to keep them at home and and care for them until until they pass and so i think there is something that feels a little bit more old world about about the those themes and and just the culture in general that perhaps lends itself you know to shakespeare or shakespeare lends itself to to that <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, you can, you can apply. He was enough. Yeah. He was, I'm, I'm not sure if it was because he was influential and we see it everywhere, or he was just perceptive enough that we see it in all of his work, but he can, you can apply the templates of his place to almost anyone's world or life. If you wait long enough, right. You'll encounter a Shakespeare reference in your own life. It just, it's a matter of time. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there, I mean, that's what story is, right? Didn't Plato say there's only seven types of stories? Yeah. I totally got that wrong. And so it's true. Like so. when you really kind of break it down, we only have like there's there's certain themes and certain story arcs that I think we all live in. And every so often you'll encounter, you know, it, it, depending on what season of your life you're in, you'll encounter that. Yeah. And Donkey Head deals with... Um, yeah, manipulation, as you said. I mean, uh, I think it's not the it's not her it's not the auntie's first scene, but her second scene where she just unleashes all these vague, manipulative lines on each kid in sequence. You know, my wise girl, <laughs> my smart girl, my good girl, brave boy. They're just they're perfectly attuned to the person she's speaking to. And I was thinking, okay, is this the villain? <laughs> is there the, the, there really isn't one? But mm -hmm. if I've been in a similar situation where an older relative has tried to manipulate me, and I have, that would be the person I tag as the enemy because of my own experience and training in, in family situations and being in lines of succession and, and care and all of that. Um, and totally. again, yeah. right, like it's all kind of relatable, um, Desi or, 
you know, Jewish diaspora for my family, Ukrainian, Lithuanian, Polish, uh, all going for each other's throats as my grandfather was in a sick bed for months, but that's just how everybody responds. And maybe that's it. The universality of experience is just because there's really only a couple of ways to lose an elder. And yeah, it's kind of wild what happens to a family, you know, when, when the patriarch or the matriarch passes away and how there's a certain amount, like, maybe not for all families, maybe some can actually go through it in a really peaceful way, but there is, there is something about, you know, what am I owed? What am I owed in, in his life now that he's leaving? What do I get out of this? Yeah. You know, and it's, it's kind of crazy that we, as human beings go to that place, but it's almost <laughs> in some ways inevitable. Like, and it, it's, it's like you said, it's universal. And I think that's, what's so important about, about when I made Don Gied was to be able to show this family, the South Asian family as specific as possible, but really hoping and, and knowing in some ways that through specificity does become universal. And that somebody from a Jewish background who's Ukrainian, Lithuanian will be able to perhaps like connect to, to this family. Just like when, you know, when I grew up and, and I watched um, my big fat Greek wedding, it felt like, oh, that's like a, that's like my family right yeah. there, you know? And, and I think everybody sort of felt that way in one way or another about that film, you know? So it never really kind of scared me that, that maybe people wouldn't necessarily connect or it wouldn't necessarily they wouldn't necessarily be able to see at least a piece of themselves when watching Donkey Head. Yeah. And how's the response been? I know it's been on Netflix for a while and everywhere but Canada. So um, <laughs> how is it? How is that going? Uh, it's been really great. Yeah, I was I was um, I mean, you never know, right, how something's going to land when you put it out there. And it's been really positive. People the film has resonated with a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds, but also in particular, I mean, there's a real need for, you know, people of color to be seen and, and to feel like they're being seen and to feel like they're being heard. So it's been really exciting to just get notes and, you know, messages from people who, who say, wow, like this is my story or this is, this is my family and, and thanks for, for putting it out there, you know, cause that's, that's something that I've definitely yearned for. Like I wanted to be Juliet, but like they've never made that version before, you know? And so, um, so yeah, it, it was important for me to, I mean, it is important for me as a filmmaker to keep creating these types of stories. It is public domain. You could do it for the next picture. I've thought about it, but I don't think I could actually, <laughs> I mean, I, I think this film has just had such a place in my heart for so long that I, I don't think I could because it's, uh, it's, it's so good. Like how could, like it would always be compared unless you do it completely differently. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, digital green screen, you can do almost anything. Set it in space. <laughs> it's true. It's set it in space. <laughs> My thanks to Agam Darshi, whose sharp-edged family dramedy Donkey Head is streaming on Netflix in most of the world and opens theatrically in Regina, Saskatoon, and Toronto today. It's good, and you should watch it. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find Agam on Twitter at Darshi Agam, all one word, and you can find William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet on Blu-ray and DVD from 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment, I think it's still in print, and it's also streaming on Disney Plus and Crave in Canada and on Tubi in the U.S., and, of course, it's available to rent or buy on pretty much all VOD platforms. 
As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I host the Now What podcast every Friday in addition to writing far too many words about movies and television. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.